0: How do you spot a liar? That's a question. Detectives, FBI agents have been asking for a long time. If someone commits a serious crime, they're going to try and get away with it. A few might be plagued in their conscience and confess, but most they are going to lie through their teeth to appear innocent. And so when a suspect is taken in for questioning, it then becomes the job of the detective to try and ascertain whether or not this person is telling the truth. You never want to convict someone who's truly innocent. You want to unmask the liar. But how do you do that? Some detectives say they look for certain nonverbal cues, that the intense pressure of lying is known to increase heart rate, breathing, body temperature. So a person who's lying might blush, they might sweat, excessively fidget. They also look for gaze aversion, where they, can't, they, they break eye contact when they're lying. None of these nonverbal cues are concrete proof of lying, though. Better detectives rely more on what the suspect says. Can they be caught in some lie? Let them spin their tale, tell their story, see what they say. Where were they during the time of the crime? What were they doing? Just let them keep talking, and then maybe a little later, introduce one little piece of evidence you have. You have video of them near the scene of the crime when they just said they were in another town, so let them explain that away. Let them keep talking. See how their story changes. When they're done, have them tell the same story in reverse order. It's a tactic said to often trip up someone who's lying. It's only right to measure them by their words. It's not always easy to spot liars. There are some signs, but some are truly skilled. They can pass visual examination. They can fool polygraph tests. But let them be measured by their words. When you know the truth, unmasking a liar becomes much easier. And it's not all that different for liars in the church. The church is no stranger to liars, and here we're talking about false teachers. They can be likened to spiritual criminals. They infiltrate the church, posing as spiritual leaders, claiming to speak for God. But most often, their objective is theft. They've come to fleece the flock for financial gain. Others are guilty of a a spiritual murder. They're preaching a false gospel that cannot save while convincing people they're going to heaven. False teaching is a serious problem and always has been for Israel and the church. God and his word are true. Satan is the father of lies. He's been distorting God's word from the beginning in order to lead astray mankind. It worked with Eve. He's been doing it ever since. That first deception resulted in the spiritual death and depravity of all mankind. And God in his grace and mercy provided a way of escape, a way of salvation after that, but Satan and those under him, they're still at work now trying to keep people from that way. Not long ago in Matthew 7, as we're going through the gospel of Matthew, Jesus taught on these two ways. Everyone in the world is on one of two ways. But only one of these ways leads to the kingdom of heaven. And that way, Jesus said, is narrow. He said, Matthew seven fourteen: the gate is small and the way is narrow. That leads to life and there are few who find it. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation exclusively goes through him by faith. There's no other way to be reconciled to God. There's no other savior. But false teachers, themselves pawns of the father of lies, teach the opposite. From other religions to other worldviews, from pragmatism to inclusivism, they teach there are many ways to God. All roads lead to heaven. Yet in reality, these false teachers and those who follow them, they're not on the narrow way leading to life. They're on the other way, which Jesus describes in the next verse, Matthew 7, 13, where he says, The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. This is serious teaching. I mean, salvation is at stake. Liars are at work in the church some are outright deceivers. Others are just self-deceived. But if you listen to them, you're going to be taken away from the narrow way. This is so serious that immediately after teaching on these two ways, Jesus follows up in the Sermon on the Mount with this very serious warning. The next verse, Matthew seven fifteen, he says, "...beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." Jesus knows that just as Satan immediately attacked God's people in the Garden of Eden by assaulting the truth, he will again immediately attack God's new people, the church. There's going to be a full frontal assault on the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. And the early church experienced that. Not much has changed ever since. The truth of God's word is still under attack. But the most dangerous attacks come from within. It is the wolves in sheep's clothing, which we learned represent false teachers posing as shepherds who pose the greatest threat to the church. There are countless leaders and pastors in the church who are misleading people. And it is not always by outright rank heresy. In a sense, like that's that's easy to spot. No, rather deception often comes in subtle distortions of the truth or slight omissions of the truth. People are told only what they want. To hear, I mean, God's word matters so much. We know that we're, we're saved by truth, we're sanctified by truth, we're guided by truth. I mean, without His truth, we're, we're lost in every sense of the word. And so, clearly, then the church must guard the truth. We are told to guard the truth. And that means guarding against those who seek to subvert it. This is why we we have to take seriously Christ's command to all of us: beware of the false prophets. How do we do that? In the rest of Matthew 7, Jesus tells us, he says twice, you will know them by their fruits. Repeats it for emphasis. Though shrouded in shepherd's clothing, their true nature is going to come out through fruit. Well, what does that fruit look like? What does it represent? In Matthew 7, which was our subject a couple weeks ago, Jesus does not stop to identify the fruit for us. He doesn't elaborate. He moves on. But the rest of the scriptures have so much to say about what the bad fruit of the false teacher looks like. And just given the ongoing threat of false teaching and the prevalence of false teachers in the church today, I decided to pause Matthew for two weeks just to take a deeper dive into scripture and show you how God's word elaborates on on what we've been learning. Beware false prophets. We must take that seriously. You'll know them by their fruits. What kind of fruit are we talking about? What does it look like? Well, from searching the scriptures last week, we we started to get into six key fruits that you must examine so as to spot false teachers. Six key fruits that you must examine so as to spot a false teacher. And there's so much biblical content here. We had to split this up into two weeks. And last week, we covered the first three, their character, their conduct, their checkbook, they're driven by financial gain. I mean, time doesn't afford us any sort of substantial recap. Suffice it to say, you know, broadly speaking, this fruit represents what a person says and what they do. And last week, the focus was entirely on a teacher's life, his deeds, his character, his conduct. But now we're going to shift our attention to his words. Let them be measured by their words. A spiritual leader, yes, first and foremost, is measured by his life, his character. We learned that, that's huge. But many false teachers are skilled at hiding that or putting on appearances. And just as Satan comes disguised as an angel of light, so his servants appear as messengers of righteousness. They can fool them, but let them be measured by their words. We have the truth. We have the scriptures. So as we compare what they say with the scriptures, we can identify who they are. This is something we're commanded to do, and it's a major major way in which we are to spot the false teacher. And so, with this in mind, we're going to carry on and conclude this little study this morning on how to spot false teachers so as to heed Christ's warning beware the false prophet. Now, I should mention this past week, I decided to consolidate two points into one, so we'll revise it to five key fruits to examine. So last week, we focused on their deeds. This week, you'll see the focus is now all on their words. Carrying on with number four, a, a very big one, their creed. Their character, their conduct, their checkbook, now their creed. And it was over in Matthew 12, Jesus, he teaches a similar lesson about trees and their fruit, where he says, Matthew 12:33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. It's almost identical to what he said in Matthew 7. Only this time in that text, Jesus goes on and he actually gives an example of the fruit he's talking about. And there he highlights their, their words, their teaching. He says right after that, he says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The heart represents the tree, who we are on the inside. And you know, by the fruit of one's words, who they are. Jesus said that in response to the false teachers of his day, who happened to be the religious leaders of Israel. So what do you know? False teachers found among the religious establishment. He's already rebuked them for their character. And here he's rebuking them for their false teaching. Character matters, but so does teaching. When it comes to what qualifies a spiritual leader, an elder, a pastor, it's not an either or proposition, meaning either they have godly character or they have sound doctrine. Just pick one. It's a both and. They must have both godly character and sound doctrine. And if any teacher contradicts the word, you are to reject him. We learned in Titus 1, the elder qualifications all about his character, but it also includes his teaching as Titus one nine says, he must be holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. It says there, the elder must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. What teaching are we talking about? Well, Paul means apostolic teaching. In addition to the Old Testament, the canon was being expanded by Christ's apostles i.e. a New Testament was being given. It was put together. We're just talking about the Bible now. And what this means is there's a very simple way to examine teachers, just compare everything they say to the scriptures. Are they rightly dividing the word, accurately teaching the word, faithfully representing the word or not? And hence we have this fourth fruit to examine, which is their creed. And so by this, we mean their their beliefs, their convictions, their doctrine. What do they believe? What do they teach? And examine their teaching across the board. They might appear orthodox in many ways. If you find serious false teaching even in one way, we're to reject them. If someone baked a large cake and it called for eight eggs, but one of them was completely rotten, but they used it anyway, would you eat that cake? I mean, you can still smell how rotten and putrid it is, even though mixed with seven other good eggs, you would reject the whole thing. And so it is with false teachers. Now, for further consideration here, I want to give you what I would say are the top three areas of doctrine to examine when evaluating a teacher or a spiritual leader, someone who claims to represent God to you. These are just, I think, some of the, the top areas where false teaching seems to always emerge. And I want you just to be aware of them as their goal is simply equipping in these messages. So first you need to look for the wrong Jesus. Look for the wrong Jesus. You can open your Bibles now to first John chapter four. Again, we'll be surveying this morning, many passages, but first John chapter four, one major place to check for error is Christology, the person, the work of Christ. Satan knows his most effective tactic is not to, oppose jesus it is to counterfeit jesus to sell people on a, a more palatable less offensive less demanding jesus but one who can't save you know buildings have fire escape maps telling you that the way to escape in case there's an emergency fire what if someone replaced that with a, a new map that looks almost identical except that the fire escape route leads to a dead end and if, if people who actually follow that in case of emergency they would be doomed and that's what Satan does with Jesus all the time. He he gives us a false counterfeit savior. This is something John exposes in 1st John a lot. One of the tests of genuine faith John presents is doctrinal orthodoxy. This is especially the case concerning spiritual leaders. 1 John 4, look at verse 1. He says, "Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God." Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. At the end of chapter 3, he referenced the Holy Spirit. But here he's letting us know that there's other spirits who are not so holy. And they serve the father of lies. And John himself connects these evil spirits with false prophets. He's actually making clear that the true origin of false teaching is demonic. It's just like Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, which reads... He says, the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So what are we to do then? How can we possibly guard against like demonically inspired false teaching? Well, John tells us the next verse to examine their creed. Verse two, he says, by this, you know, the spirit of God Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. His message is test the spirits. By that he means examine their teaching. And you do that by comparing it to scripture, which he clarifies in verse 6. He says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's how you tell. John can say that because he is an apostle. Jesus delegated his authority to these men to speak his words, to represent him to the new church, to pen a new testament, which rests atop the Old Testament. And so you compare what any teacher says to this, these testaments, and if they don't... Uh, Agree, that is a spirit of error. It really is that simple. And this is true across the board, but John frequently points out error concerning Christ, the person of Christ, which was already under attack in the early church. Here in verse 2, he's dealing with those who deny his true and full humanity, that he didn't come in the flesh. Others were denying his true and full deity. He deals with that down in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God. Which is essential to the person of Jesus is both his full humanity and his full deity. To change this is to change Jesus and to present a savior who cannot save. So you know that any spirit or teaching that does not confess this is not from God. And John says it's the spirit of the antichrist. The same demonic deception that will inspire the the rule of the final Antichrist is already at work. And just keep in mind, that term Antichrist does not mean against Christ. It means in the place of Christ. All the great deceivers work by counterfeiting the real thing. And so you must beware. What should you do when you encounter a false teacher, someone who preaches another Jesus or a wrong Jesus? How should you respond to that? Just turn one page to 2 John, an epistle most people don't pay attention to. But listen to 2 John. He's still talking about people who are denying Jesus coming in the flesh. So here, he's just dealing with those who deny his humanity. Says that verse 7, verse 8. Now look at verse 9, 2 John 9 through 11. He says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Point is, don't show hospitality to a false teacher. Especially back then, they relied on hospitality as they went from town to town. He's saying, don't, don't even give them a greeting. Does that sound unloving to you? But as believers, we are to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And he hates falsehood. We cannot support or tolerate such deception. So when the Mormon or Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, and they subscribe to serious false teaching on the personhood of Christ, you can speak truth to them, rebuke their false doctrine, and send them on their way. But you don't just find false teaching on Christ among the cults. You also find it within the evangelical church. And last week, in case you missed it, we justified the practice of naming names. The Apostle Paul named the names of false teachers in his day all the time. How else are you to let the sheep be aware, be on guard against those who are leading them astray? And this is all the more important today because through the internet, false teachers can reach millions of people at all times. And so think about this. If you were to go to YouTube and just type in the search bar, Christian Sermon, just Christian Sermon, and you sort by the top hits, there's one name that just dominates the charts, like dominates. It's T.D. Jakes. He's a best-selling author, pastor of a Dallas megachurch, boasts some 17,000 people. He's a very gifted speaker, communicator. It's probably why Oprah loves him so much. When Oprah loves your preaching and your theology, it is not a good sign. But not only is Jake's a rank prosperity preacher, he denies the personhood of Christ, he denies the Trinity. He's from oneness, Pentecostalism, so he, he holds to what's known as modalism or Sabellianism. This teaching denies the personhood of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, saying they're just manifestations of God. That means Jesus is not a divine person of God. The Spirit is not a divine person of God. Our intention in this sermon is not to get into the details of Christology or the Trinity, but is to equip you to beware false teachers. You have to examine what someone says. Just because they're popular, they're loved, they have the most views online, that does not mean they're telling the truth. Examine their creed, especially what they say about the one and only Savior. We can't tolerate any error about the one and only Savior. The way is narrow. Now, quickly, let me give you two more key areas of doctrine to examine here in evaluating a teacher. You're first looking for the wrong Jesus. Second, you're looking for the wrong gospel. The wrong gospel. Any false teaching on Christ would qualify here. But really more broadly, any teaching that alters or distorts the gospel message is a serious error. And we're called to reject the message and the messenger. Let me show that to you. You can flip to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Such false teachers come in many stripes. In Paul's day, one huge group was known as the Judaizers. These were Jews who became Christians. They confessed Jesus, but not the gospel. They believed the gospel was faith plus works. You're justified. You're made right with God by faith plus works. They added works, thereby robbing the good news. That's not the good news. The only thing we contribute is our sin. The whole trouble we're in is that we can't save ourselves. We can't do anything, any work to justify ourselves. The real good news is that Jesus came to do the work for us. And on the cross, he died in our place. He rose from the dead. And now he can freely justify forever those who believe in him. By just a a pure gift of grace, we receive by faith alone justification. Those who teach otherwise are false. Listen to what Paul had to say about other gospels, including the Judaizers, but anyone who alters this message. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. It says right at the beginning to them, the opening of the letter, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen, verse 8, but even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. That word accursed in Greek literally is anathema. That word anathema means that which is devoted to destruction. Today, our closest word probably is damned. Let them be damned. You're not going to find any stronger language than this, which is why we said there's very little patience and tolerance for the wolf. For the straying sheep, for the doubting sheep, there's unending patience and grace, tolerance, but not so for wolves. You need to look out for the wrong Jesus, the wrong gospel, and third, the wrong Bible. The wrong Bible. Here we're referring to just their view of Scripture itself. The Bible is the foundation of the whole faith. So if you're messing with the Bible, you're, you're going to fall into a whole host of errors. What is our doctrine of the Bible? Defined by scripture itself, it is inspired. Second Timothy 3.16, God breathed of the Holy Spirit overshadowed men who penned the words of scripture such that the result was the very word of God. And being inspired, it is therefore inerrant, free from error. God cannot lie. Realize there are many, even within the church, who teach otherwise. We fully expect the atheist to cast stones against the Bible, to deny its authority. Like, of course, they're going to do that. But there are false teachers who do this from within the church. So, earlier in the 20th century, you had, for example, the, the neo orthodoxy of Karl Barth. He taught that the Bible is not the Word of God. He's a Christian theologian, a minister. It's just a human book, it's full of historical and scientific errors. But The good news is it becomes the word of God when it gives you a personal encounter with Jesus. Very subjective. There are many other ways false teachers can subvert the inspiration, inerrancy, authority of the Bible. But having such a low view of scripture is going to give rise to just about every other error. This is nothing new. This is literally the first tactic Satan employed. Did God really say that? Was that really his word? he challenges the word of god now you can flip over to second peter chapter 3 so we continue to survey the scriptures last week we read a lot of second peter chapter 2 that gives that's where peter gives us like the full profile of the false teacher the whole chapter is un- unmasking the false teacher with some very serious words chapter 3 he ends this brief letter And he comes back to another caution against false teachers in his conclusion. But notice how he pinpoints their relation to scripture. 2 Peter 3, look at verse 15. He's talking about Christ. He says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. First, you can see how Paul here himself, or I'm sorry, Peter equates the writings of Paul to Scripture. We already said the Lord was expanding that the canon of His Word in this New Testament through these apostles. Yet, with the old and the new. These false teachers were distorting the truth. See that verse 16, the untaught and unstable distort. That word for distort is literally the word for torture. It was a word used for torture devices. Like when you put someone on the racks, you stretch them, you twist them. That's what they were doing to the scriptures. We are not to deny the scriptures. We're not to listen to anyone who would mutilate them or torture them or twist them or distort them. Because we know it's not the Word of man, it's the Word of God. Second Thessalonians 2:13. Paul says to them, "For this reason, we, we constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God. I have to make mention here what I think is the most prominent preacher who's so notoriously ashamed of the Bible, by way of warning. Andy Stanley. Stanley is a pastor in Georgia who has built a huge network of churches and now online services. There are so many problems with his teaching, but it all stems from his view of the Bible, taking a theologically liberal approach. He believes the Bible is impossible to defend. The flood, the exodus, walls of Jericho, all myth. Nothing really happened. They just teach moral lessons. The Bible is not living. It's not active. You can leave it behind. It's all about, the faith is all about encountering the risen Jesus. It's an encounter with the risen Jesus. Again, very neo-Orthodox. Stanley, though, teaches that Christians need to unhitch their faith from the Bible, especially the Old Testament. It's kind of his catchphrase, unhitch your faith from the Bible, especially the Old Testament. He says this, quote, We make a better case for Jesus if we leave the Old Testament out of the argument, end quote, because he's embarrassed of so many things it says. That's interesting though, because I'm pretty sure Jesus relied on the Old Testament exclusively when he was arguing for himself. Your eyes just need to be open to any teacher who is torturing the scriptures, whether it's the wrong Jesus, the wrong gospel, the wrong Bible. These are three key places false teaching always seems to show up. There are more. These aren't the only ones, but just across the board, any teaching that does not correspond with sound doctrine is to be rejected. Just like Paul says, 1st Timothy 6, 3 through 4. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. I'm not making any of this up. We're just reading the scriptures, right? This is what we are told to be on guard, to be aware. You can see though how this requires you to know sound doctrine. This is why, sadly, many are deceived. They are untaught and unstable. They don't know truth from error. They don't know sound doctrine. Now, It's, it's never our intention just to study the Bible, get all puffed up in knowledge. And that can't happen. Knowledge does puff up, and you can get to the point where you're thumbing your nose at any of the any other church that has a shorter doctrinal statement than yours. That's not what we're talking about here. We should never fall into that type of spiritual pride. But the only point we're making is that sound doctrine matters. We can't lose that or ignore that. Jesus himself prayed for us in his high priestly prayer in John 17 for our sanctification. He prayed to his father, sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, your word is truth. John 17:17. 17, 17. This is his will for us to know this truth, to guard this truth. This is a big deal. So here, learn to examine every teacher's creed. One more verse, Romans 16, 17 through 18. Paul concludes, Romans, he says to them, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So what's his command? Keep your eye on them. That's what we're trying to do. Fourthly, by examining their creed. And Now let's move on and finish with one more. Uh, another big one, putting it together. Number five. Five key fruit to examine when you're evaluating a, a teacher, pastor, spiritual leader. Fifthly, we would say their censorship. And I'll explain that. Their censorship. By this we mean what they leave out of their teaching. What they don't say. What do they fail to teach? The thing is, like, outright heresy, it's actually easy to spot among those who are taught, who know better. Even subtle error can be spotted by the discerning. But many false teachers put sheep at ease by, by never saying anything outright false. They don't deny any major doctrines. They appear completely orthodox on paper. But false teachers can also be spotted in what they censor from the message and what they omit. what we're getting at here is how many churches have substituted the preaching of the word of God for moralism. Sermons have turned into basic, you know, positive uplifting messages. They're kind of like spiritual Ted talks and designed to inform you, to entertain you. They might throw one or two Bible verses on the screen, usually ripped from context just to support whatever point the preacher wants to make. That's not how it's meant to work. We have to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, so do so. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Now look, do do we need to hear messages about God's love? Of course we do. All all the time. Do we need uplifting, encouraging messages? Absolutely. God's word is filled with them because he knows we need them. We need to hear like 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 says, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. We, We need to know that. But you realize that same verse also says admonish the unruly. The point I'm making is you you can't pick and choose. The preacher or pastor or spiritual leader, his, his commission is to preach the word and not just part of it, not selectively. Rather, he is to deliver the whole counsel of God's word to the people and not shrink back from declaring anything that God has said to them. He cannot censor any part of the message or the word of God. This includes encouragement. So sometimes he's going to encourage or teach, but sometimes correct or rebuke or admonish. Like Paul said in Acts 20, 27, he said to them, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He did not shrink back from telling them anything God had said, whether they wanted to hear it or not. And that whole counsel of God, it's going to include some uplifting, encouraging truth, how God loved us and gave his son for us, but also at times reproof, rebuke, correction. You know, when people strain to sin, they need to be told to repent. It was not the main message of Jesus. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And this is actually an intended function of preaching. The whole thing we do here at churches, like where someone stands up and talks to you. Like, where is that coming from? Why do we do this? Here's one of the key passages. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. Look how serious a charge verse 1 is. It's the most serious charge. I think of the whole Bible. Paul to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So he's really like working up something big here. Like what you're about to say is going to be very serious. What he's telling Timothy that what else can he say? What's his message? Verse two, preach the word, be ready in season, not of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction again it's one of the most serious charges in the whole bible and in, in the sight of the living god and the risen savior his message is preach the word does not say to them preach the word uplift make people just feel good tell them what they want to hear just speak pleasant words to the people that's not the charge that, that's what the goats want to hear that's what natural man wants to hear that's verse three He tells them, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The they is is talking about the people. They will not endure it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They want to stay religious. They like the socialness of the, the church, feeling religious. But they don't want actually this offensive message of the cross. They'll find teachers who who suit their desires. And sadly, there is often a strong correlation between false teachers and false believers. Regarding the preacher, though, he is meant to be God's herald and his message is not up to him. He's got a textbook. He cannot stray from it. It's the word. He must relay the king's message. That's just what the people need to hear. It doesn't matter if they want to hear it. It's what they need to hear because God said so. Imagine the king of a great kingdom, and he sends a herald to a neighboring little kingdom. And he has, he has a positive and negative message for this, this little kingdom. He wants them to know first, he loves them. He values their partnership, their friendship over all these years. But at the same time, they've been harboring bandits within their borders who are raiding his villages. And he's got to stop. If they don't purge these criminals from their midst, he's going to invade. He's going to do it himself and take over. So he sends his herald. Now imagine the herald showing up in this little kingdom and he he starts thinking about himself. He says, if I tell them like the bad news, they're not going to love me. They might hate me. They might even hurt me. So he decides to leave the bad news out. He only chooses to tell them the positive side of the message. He tells them, you know, here ye, little kingdom have a message from the great king. He he loves you. He he loves your, your friendship. He values your partnership after all these years. End of message. That's it. And at this news, the people of the little kingdom rejoice. They, they throw a banquet in honor of the herald. They treat him like a king. He's loved by all. He's esteemed by all. But meanwhile, that, that word of warning never got through. The bandits continue to raid the villages of the great kingdom. So his patience runs out, he invades with the full force of his army and just lays waste, takes over this little kingdom. So now what would you make of this herald? And when the king finds out that he never gave the full message, what will he do to the herald? He'll bring him to a terrible end, just like 2 Peter 2.1 says of the false teachers. They're bringing a swift destruction on themselves. Pastors and preachers are God's heralds. And woe unto them if they do not speak the full counsel of God's message. This is precisely what God said to Ezekiel. If you're quick, you can go to Ezekiel 33 or you can listen along. But he appointed Ezekiel as a watchman over his people. The watchman looks out. If he sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, God says, the people's blood are on his hands. Then God connects this message of the watchman to the prophet's role. What's the prophet supposed to do? Ezekiel 33, 7 through 9. God says to him, now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. He says, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, a wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your your part warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your life. That is the role of the preacher, the herald, the prophet, the teacher. You realize, don't you, that all the warnings of scripture are God's mercy. You get that, right? I know it sounds harsh, but it's actually God's love. It's his mercy warning you, us, people. To repent. God doesn't have to give any warning to anyone. He can just bring down his wrath, his perfect justice anytime he wants. He doesn't have to give any sinner any time to repent. It is only his mercy, like Peter said, his patience that leads him to do so. And yes, many people are not going to heed his warnings. But does not true love, actual love, compel us to warn people? That is the loving thing to do. And this is the job of the herald. This is a major function of the preaching of the word of God. But how many teachers, preachers, spiritual leaders today, they're more like the unfaithful herald or the wicked watchman. that They, they don't warn the people. They never give the full message of the kingdom. They censor the message. They share only the positive side. It's almost like they, they just want to be loved and esteemed by the people. It's almost like they forgot who's the king. Whose word are we giving? Whose message are we supposed to relay? And so today, you know, what gets censored from a lot of popular preaching today in America? Well, pretty much, you know, anything negative. God's love is preached, but not his holiness, not his righteousness. Nothing is said of sin, depravity, or the need for repentance. There are no warnings of the coming judgment or the wrath of God. And you see what all this does, they, they want to appear loving, but it just cheapens the message of the cross. It cheapens the good news. It robs the good news and turns it into just moralism. And then you also have serious sins that have emerged in our culture these days, like homosexuality, transgenderism. They won't touch those with a 10-foot pole. They will never condemn these sins. At best, keep their position perpetually vague, just because they don't want to lose favor or popularity. Really, this was the tactic of one of the, the pioneers of the seeker-sensitive church growth movement, Robert Schuler of the Crystal Cathedral. He refused to talk about sin. He believed it's wrong for any teacher or preacher to, to really talk about sin. And actually, he, he defined sin as a lack of self-esteem. He said, quote, the most serious sin is the one that causes me to say, I am unworthy, end quote. You don't really need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in yourself. And you're not really lost. He says this. Listen to this quote. Quote, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. End quote. In other words, the worst thing you can do to try and save people it's to convince them they're lost sinners. It's the last thing you should do, he said. Which is interesting because I wonder why Paul spent the first three chapters of Romans doing just that. Saying all have sinned, there's none righteous, not even one. Then telling us the good news of Christ. I wonder why Jesus said in John 16:8 that that was going to send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness. I wonder why Jesus said he did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. I wonder why the crystal cathedral imploded and the building was sold to the Catholic church. There are a lot of Christians today, they would not like the preaching of Jesus or his apostles. It's just too hard for them. It would turn them away. And many did. John 6, many so-called disciples walked away from Jesus. They couldn't handle the spiritual food. They liked the bread, just not his teaching. But you recall, it was Jesus himself who spoke and warned of hell about three times more than he did of heaven. That warning was mercy. His message was repent. That is God's love to you. But many false teachers today are proven false by omission. We have to make mention of the top of the list, Joel Osteen, pastor of the largest church in America, the, the most books sold, the greatest reach globally. He tracks so many people because he's ministering on the broad path of destruction. What is his basic message? God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. God has an abundant life in store for you. Here's how you can reach your full potent, potential of health, wealth, and happiness. That's pretty much it. This type of teaching has been termed by some, you know, therapeutic, moralistic deism. It loosely invokes God's name and teaches some moral lessons just to make you feel good. God exists. What's the function of God? Just to solve your problems and give you a better life. That's, that's why God exists. But never is the gospel preached. The way into the kingdom is never revealed. Ossian doesn't even believe Jesus is the only way. He and those like him are not faithful shepherds or watchmen or heralds. They're like the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. Back in Jeremiah's day, the Israelites had become so wicked and corrupt and immoral that God's judgment was right at the door. He was going to to lay them low. But he gave them one last chance, one last warning through the prophet Jeremiah. He sent them Jeremiah, the lonely, weeping prophet, to give them his word. And, and Jeremiah could say nothing else. He told the people. God's judgment is right at the door with the Babylonians. The sword will come. They will lay waste to Jerusalem. They will destroy the temple. And you're all going to be exiled to Babylon for 70 years. This is an earth shattering message. How could God do this? But this was the warning. Repent or else. That's the message. Now surprise, surprise. The people did not like hearing that. They did not like this message. The king did not like this message. They hated Jeremiah for his message. They locked him up, treated him poorly, almost killed him. Meanwhile, there are many other prophets in that day, and they all had the same message. They all had a completely opposite message that they gave to the people, to the king. A very positive, uplifting message. And they basically said, like, God's, God's not going to do any of that. The sword will not come. The Babylonians will not invade. The temple will last forever. We're God's people. Peace. Nothing's going to happen. Now, you likely know every single one of those prophets was proven false when they were all wiped out in God's wrath. But those prophets led the people astray. So listen to God's own indictment on those other prophets. Just listen, Jeremiah 6, 13 through 14. He says, for from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Meaning that the message of peace was false. They did not represent what God had said. Jeremiah 23, 16, 17. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They're leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, that the Lord has said, you will have peace. And as for everyone who walks in the stubbornness of his own heart, they say, calamity will not come upon you. They're, They're feeding people lies. They're just telling people what they wanted to hear. All because they wanted to be loved. They wanted gain. They had something else they were after. And God's wrath did fall on the people, but a greater wrath was reserved for all those false prophets. Look, the faithful preacher or shepherd, he's never going to be loved by the world. Never. Until Christ comes. Why is that? Well, because he preaches and represents the light of Christ and the darkness hates the light. They hated him and he promised they will treat us how they treated him. And remember, to the world, the message of the cross is both foolish and offensive. So when you see a teacher trying to please the world, trying to be loved By the world, trying to curry favor with the world, beware. Because he can only do that one way by censoring the message of the cross, by omitting the message of the cross, by removing the offense of the cross. He's going to have to remove all traces of the bad news of sin and judgment. But again, that robs the good news of any meaning. You just have a neutered social gospel that cannot save. In any case, Learn this morning to examine carefully the words of any pastor or preacher or spiritual leader, what he says and what he does. Don't be fooled. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be unaware. In all the study of these two weeks, you realize that this subject matter matters so much to the Lord. It's dealt with so extensively in the New Testament, I think for one reason because the Lord loves his church, his bride. He died for the church. He does not take kindly to those who seek to harm his bride. Would you? And so, heed Christ's warning. Beware false prophets. And I think the best thing and all you can do to heed this is for yourself to grow in the grace and knowledge of the truth. The grace and knowledge of Christ. That was Peter's conclusion to his second epistle. It'll be our conclusion. Again, chapter 2 of 2nd Peter, that was his full broadside blast against false teachers. He says, watch out for them. At the very end of his letter, he comes back to that message. What are his very final words in 2 Peter? He says this, 2 Peter 3.17. He says, you there, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your steadfastness. He, He has to come back to this message with this closing word. Be on your guard. I'm telling you again, be on your guard. I don't want you to be carried away, fall from the faith. We've learned five ways you can do that. Five areas to examine so that we are not carried away by lawless men, knocked off the narrow path. But That's not all. In addition to being on guard, kind of on one side, he also says this on the positive side. It's be on your guard, but verse 18, he says, but also grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And this is what we must ultimately do to be on guard. Send down roots deep into the grace and knowledge of Christ. That nothing can shake you. Nothing can pull you from the way. You need to so just closely follow Christ. Set your eyes on Christ, the chief shepherd, that you know his voice. No wolf, no wolf in sheep's clothing can lead you astray. You know the voice of your master. You can discern and spot all those who speak to you with a different voice and would seek to lead you astray. So let us be on guard and let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray asking for your grace, your protection over your church. We do thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though we all were lost sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to do anything to, to save ourselves, to justify ourselves. It was your love and mercy that caused you to send your son Christ to, to save us, to do the only work that could save us, to atone for our sins, to pay the full penalty, and to justify us freely forever. We, we magnify you for the gift of grace that's found in the gospel, which we receive by faith alone. We're not ashamed of this gospel. We don't want to change it. it it's good news. We live by it. We will die by it guard us and keep us in this truth and open our eyes to those who seek to, to alter it, to subvert it, to distort it. We want to be loving, but we must speak the truth in love. We're called to guard this treasure that has been entrusted to us and let the other world, and let the whole world know of the good news. That can only happen if we are found faithful, from me to all of us here to do our part to just be faithful heralds, faithful messengers, witnesses, and so closely guard the truth you've entrusted to us. So to so protect us, We thank you for setting your love and making us your bride. And in your grace, you love your bride, the church. You will not lose your bride. You will protect and preserve it. Yet you've called us to be responsible. So so help us and convict us, open our eyes and deepen us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.